documented 25 seconds. 20 seconds and counting. T-minus 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9. Ignition sequence start. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. As Apollo 11 does its roll program, this podcast now does its roll program. The tape is rolling. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. My name is Grant Cameron, and you're listening to the Paranormal UFO Consciousness Podcast. Thank you for taking time from your life to be here. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk about UFO medals. On June the 1st of this year, a new book called Trinity will be coming out with uh, authors Jacques Vallée and Paula Harris. It deals with a an incident of a crash that occurred just after the Trinity blast in 1945 in New Mexico. Uh, two witnesses involved. Um, I've, no, I've known Paula for a number of years, so I've, I've seen the videos of the testimony. I've handled a piece of metal that was recovered from the site by the two young boys. And this will be the basis of the the book called Trinity, which they've been working on. The analysis of that metal, um, fragment of the metal, was done in Australia. And it came up um, showing nothing really um, off-world significance but not ruling it out the key to this whole story is that jack Vallée is sort of the expert on metals and uh he had a piece of this um which he was provided by uh paula i know hami masan had a piece that he analyzed and i'm pretty sure jack Vallée is not going with the trinity book unless he has found something significant in the analysis of metal which I uh, would guess is being done at this uh, with Gary Nolan at Stanford University. I've worked a lot on metals over the years. I was involved um, in gathering the Canadian flying saucer material from 1950 to 1954. Um, I was good friends with the uh, metal metallurgist that worked for the Canadian government during that period of time. His name was uh, Art Bridge. He really didn't want to talk to me, but Wilbur Smith, who ran the program, his wife, Merle Smith, uh, was so impressed that I'd gone across the country to talk to her. She told the metallurgist that he had to talk to me. I talked to him um, a couple of times in interviews where his whole family was made to leave the room. The door was closed. And I asked him, how much metal did you and Wilbur handle? Because there was stories that uh, James Smith had told. Blue military trucks, uh, cars coming up to the house, uh, packages from the United States, all sorts of uh, pieces of metal that, as the son said, the U.S. Air Force wanted Wilbur to have a go at. So I asked the metallurgist, I said, how much metal did you actually deal with? He said, tons of it. Uh, there was a big piece, uh, two big pieces of metal that were found in a big explosion on the St. Lawrence River. 
Uh, one of those pieces actually was pulled. It was, I think, a 3,000-pound piece of metal, which was in somebody's front yard. And um, to this day, I still cannot locate uh, who has it. But that piece is, I'm pretty sure, still around. Uh, Wilbur did a lot of analysis. A lot of reports were put out. Nothing conclusive, but um, uh, a lot of things that indicated that it was it was not slag that people were claiming it was from um, a foundry near where the metal was found. So I've had these pieces of metal. I've also I've always believed that these pieces of metal are most likely to be a ports. Um, it doesn't make sense to me that a flying saucer flies across the galaxy and then crashes, or that a flying saucer, worse yet, flies across the galaxy, and as soon as it gets here, little pieces start falling off the flying saucer. We see stuff like um, UFO technology at the Nimitz site where the UFO drops from 80,000 feet down to sea level in seven-eighths of a second. It seems strange to me that that kind of technology would suddenly have little pieces falling off, or where uh, you can take a piece of metal, the Roswell piece of metal that was um, uh, rumored to be uh, recovered and analyzed, that they had shot bullets at it, they had tried to dent it with a sledgehammer, they tried to burn it, they tried to cut it, uh, they couldn't do anything to um, damage this metal. And yet the idea is that the UFO is flying through in Mexico and it gets hit by lightning or runs into radar and hits the ground and breaks into millions of little pieces like dropping a wine glass from the fifth floor of a, of a balcony. So I believe that it, that they, they may be dropping this material. The two supporting witnesses that I would bring in are Bob Bigelow. Bob Bigelow was asked about the crash at New, in uh, Roswell, New Mexico, and by George Knapp in a recent interview. And he said, yeah, there was that one, but there was others. In fact, there was one in Russia, and there was he believed there was one in China, there was one in South America, and there was crashes all over the place. And then he said, I think they're seeding it. The other witness I would bring up is Tyler D., who is in the American Cosmic Book, who is the big NASA guy who um, deals was dealing with um, Chris Bledsoe, uh, a fellow who I've met uh, in 2013, um, when he took um, Diane Pasolka and a, an, a scientist from Stanford University to a site in New Mexico to uh, look for metal at a place that he called the crash site. Uh, the reference they were giving, and I talked to Ryan about this, whether Tyler actually used the term, and he said, yeah, Tyler had used it, and that was that they were calling this the gifting field. I actually have a piece of metal from the gifting field uh, because it was my friend Mark Olson here in Winnipeg who actually... Uh, notified Tyler D. there was going to be a dig at the field, and Tyler went along uh, for the dig, and then he got very interested in it, and Mark went back to his normal life. So there's a lot of this metal around. Um, you had the Canadian pieces. Chris Bledsoe has had a number of pieces that um, he has showed me. Um, one of the pieces came off. It was dripping off of an orb that he said was 11 feet off the ground. It was flying along the driveway, dripping this metal, uh, they gathered all the metal together, and um, that was one piece. It was a piece that looked like a honeycomb that was sort of melted, which again uh, makes you wonder, I mean, if they come across the galaxy, how come it sort of uh, collapses and sort of melts as soon as it um, runs into any sort of crash or, or in, in, in interference here on Earth. The other piece that I had seen was um, at Stanton Friedman's collection, um, 
Stanton had received a piece. Someone had offered him a piece of the Roswell uh, medal. And in the collection, there's actually a little baggie with a piece of metal and a, a handwritten note that said, Stanton, here's the piece of metal from Roswell that I promised you. Um, I immediately notified the archivist to put that thing under lock and key that that thing would walk if they allowed it. So that one may not, never be analyzed, but uh, I do have it. Um, I've showed it on Facebook, and I've talked about it a number of times, this piece that's at the Stanton Friedman Collection. And I'm sure Stan had also other pieces of medals that were offered to him, but right now that's the only one we found in the collection. Uh, as I said, I have two pieces. Uh, Desta Barnaby and, actu and I actually found... Uh, a piece in the James McDonald collection at the University of Arizona when we were there. It was actually Desta the founder right at the end of the day. And what it was, was a piece that had been uh, discovered. It came out of the sky like a meteorite. 1939 in Illinois. Uh, the farmer saw it coming down. It dug itself like a spike. It looks like a spike with a, a sort of a bubbly top on the top of it into the garden. It was red hot. He had to wait for it to cool down. He then took a knife and he dug it out of the garden. And he held it till 1967. He gave it to his daughter, who was in Tucson, Arizona. And that was a time when NASA was sending people to the moon. And they had a lab in Tucson. And she took the medal to the lab in Tucson, the NASA lab. And they determined that um, it was 99% pure nickel, that there was nothing in the sky flying at that time that was using any sort of metal at that purity. It had a copper core on the inside of it that they discovered only when they sent it for an analysis and cut the end off it and discovered it had this copper core in the middle of it. So that piece, we don't really know where it is. We've got the photographs of it. We've got the analysis of it. The American Nickel Company looked at it, um, said, we couldn't, we can't really help you. We can't really identify any more than what you've discovered is that um, this is very high-end high nickel. Uh, we have no explanation of where it came from or who might have been using this kind of stuff. So this stuff's been around quite a bit. Now, the piece I'm going to play for you right now is an interview I did with Linda Moulton Howe in 2018 at Eureka Springs with uh, Desta Barnaby. And it's during that conversation in a hotel room that I ask uh, Linda about the most famous UFO piece that has been around, and that is the uh, the layered piece of bismuth magnesium uh, uh, metal that has all these different layers of uh, very, very thin uh, metal that looks like it's put down one atom at a time and uh, having two metals that really don't bind with each other. So here's the uh, uh, audio of the conversation I have with Linda. And Linda had a piece, I believe she sold it to TTSA. Uh, there's still a, a piece that was that's being held by Whitley Strieber and Whitley Strieber and Linda Moulton Howe both got them from Art Bell, who was the famous Coast to Coast uh, guy that started it. Bob Bigelow started the Coast to Coast show. Uh, Art Bell was the first host, and uh, he received this from somebody who claimed uh, that his grandfather or his father had uh, gotten it off the uh, bottom of the, the Roswell crash, and it's still a very mysterious piece of metal. Most people will have seen it, but here's Linda Moulton Howe talking about the bismuth magnesium piece that she got from Art Bell. Another question about the layered material. Do you, do you have any theory as to why they're laying this material and how thick the layers are? Because you said it's oh, 30, yeah. you said it's thirty six rather. Because the longest saying eighty, but you're saying it's only 
Yeah, he, I don't know what, where he's getting his numbers. Uh, I worked with a University of Michigan person. Hal, I have 20 scientists who dealt with me with this in 1996. And they were looking at it first as a superconductor. But the measurements and everything's in my book and at Earth Files and it's, it's all there. You can read all the <coughs> photographs and everything yourself. Um, one to four microns. This is very key. One to four microns. The bismuth is so pure that when I took it to the ion microprobe at the Carnegie Institute in Washington, D.C., and I write about this in uh, the book, Glimpses, Volume 2. Uh, Eric Howery was the ion microprobe guy, and he spent uh, an hour or so just examining the bismuth layers, one to four microns, at the atomic level, looking for lead. Because on a periodic table, bismuth and lead are right next to each other. And he had never ever at the Carnegie Institute having an ion microprobe that they could look at magnesium and bismuth and a lot of things. You have to have a very specific ion microprobe for this. They never, <clears throat> he never seen bismuth so pure that there were no lead molecules. So that was part of this report. It was pure bismuth, one to four microns. Uh, it was, let's see, 1996. Uh, I still have the uh, Scientific American, it was when nanotechnology was beginning to take root in the 90s that the magic change from non-nano to nano, one to four microns. An entire, I still have the whole article about this magic transition in the nano world and all of the bismuth layers were one to four microns, and they go up and down in a wave. What do you mean, in a wave? They, they, they actually Change. have, Change. and we've investigated this, and how the first time he had it was, maybe what we've got is something that it was made to resonate with a very specific magnetic field that could be either static or dynamic, and that's what Hal first investigated that would turn this into a lifting body. That was the first hypothesis, completely different from what I talked about from the physicists. Um, and when they, and the magnesium zinc was uh, 100 to 200 microns. The same waviness is in all, when you look at all, and, and 36 layers, that was the average. 36 layers, some 26, and built-in tapers. The six pieces that aren't got, because I've seen and held one of them to total, no cut from it. Uh, about the size of the palm of my hand, the uncut one, and only about uh, the 36 layers are probably a little less than a quarter of an inch. But they're built in tapers. And that security guard who was working on this, that the grandson sent all this stuff, said that they were fitted or scaled together. Uh, he said the bottom of the craft, 
The physicist said, no, it isn't just the bottom, it's the whole crap. Um, the other thing, too, is the grandfather wrote in the diary that he was standing uh, as a security guard around one of the wedge shapes. These are definitely wedge shaped, a plan form, and that the bottom only, which may have been why uh, some people thought this was only from the bottom, and he may have too, it glowed, and it glowed light. And he ma they measured it at the time at the security, they said it glowed for three hours. Well, the physicist has answers about now what, what they understand why this all works, but he said, we can't make this, Linda. He said, I don't care who you're dealing with. I don't care who Jacques Delay is dealing with. He said, we don't have the technology. We're not, we, there's no way that humans are going to be able to produce this because, and he'll give all these reasons, and if we're dealing with something that has mono, we talk about mono gold, mono iridium, that has been specifically placed at an atomic level, and that that is what makes the aluminum skin, it's the iridium in it, that is doing something with the outer skin, which has the bismuth magnesium <coughs> and that all of that together is what uh, makes gravity go away. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Is it, and is this created, do they think it's created in a weightless environment? Or can... I've heard that. I've heard that it has to be... I don't remember that the physicists stressed that, but I've heard that it... To layer it we down, could but, not but do we this. can't layer stuff like that. We, I don't even know where we would get mono. <laughs> Maybe that's why Elon Musk wants to go to Mars. Yeah. Maybe there's mono iridium on Mars. And we had talked the other night on the show because Desta had has a story that she was just telling me today about a piece from '45 about the fiber optics. Or they would you would you refer to as the horsehair? Can you talk about that? Oh yes, this is really for for all of you guys, the physicists was allowed, and why I started telling you the elevator. Each of these things related to the physicist, he had to go to different levels, <coughs> different places, and had to go through all this stuff. This is how he got to understand how they had absolute control on any entry by anybody anywhere into Area 51 where he went. And one of the uh, elevator rides, he was uh, given access to one of the craft that had the embedded six fingers, definitely six fingers, it's the Santilli film, and uh, six toes, and the reason was he was studying one of the six fingered, those panels, and he had been allowed to look at the, inside the panels with a magnifier. And there were fiber optics. I'm trying, if you put your hand in like that, then think of the panel that the hands are going in, that where each of the fingers went under a magnifier, they could see a fiber optics. And then he was shown, he wasn't given access to the body. He said they still have the bodies. <coughs> he was shown photographs. <clears throat> and they were able to show fiber optics. 
coming out of the ends of each of the six fingers. Uh, I said, well, wouldn't that mean that those six-fingered beings then were androids? If they have fiber optics running through them and coming out the fingers to interface with the panels. And he said, I know what you're asking, but I don't know how to answer that question. Because we might end up being cyborgs ourselves with fiber optic applications, which a homo sapien added to to become a cyborg is different from being a pure android. So this is, this is very interesting, though, that they found and were able to match exactly the joints at the tips of the fingers between the panels and the biological creatures. And obviously, they're controlling everything with their mind. <clears throat> um, and why haven't we heard about six-fingered, six-toes since Santilli? Yeah, it's much rarer than, yeah. than the four-fingers. And then the six in Three Genesis, fingers. they talk about six-fingered giants. Isn't there a Nordic class that was supposed to have six-fingers, six. six-toes? This is so complicated. That's this week's episode of the Paranormal UFO Consciousness Podcast. I'm your host, Grant Cameron, hoping that you will join me for upcoming episodes. Links to my YouTube interviews, books, and my Facebook sites are in the show notes. If you love the podcast or learn something valuable, We'd love for you to subscribe, rate, or give a review on today's episode. If you would like a certain paranormal subject dealt with in the future, please let us know. Until next time, watch this space, and thank you so much for listening.